Okay, so there's this guy, Steve Prince. He's an artist from New Orleans, and he's a Christian. And one of the primary ways that he expresses his faith is actually through his art. So not long ago, there was a church here in Louisville that contacted Steve because they wanted him to do some art for their sanctuary for the season of Lent. Originally, it was a Catholic church. And it has the spaces where the Station on the Cross would fall in these niches within the church. Okay, so this building, it used to be a Catholic church. It's not anymore. And it had these hollowed out spaces around the sanctuary where the Stations of the Cross had used to be. And Steve was like fascinated by these spaces in the wall. Like, what could I do with these that would be really compelling? I said, could I put the Stations of the Cross back in those spaces? But I like to reboot them and give them, you know, contemporize them. Okay, just so we're on the same page here, what exactly are the Stations of the Cross? Okay, yeah, so the Stations of the Cross, they're in most Catholic churches, and it basically tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion. So they focus on 11 pivotal moments in the story of the death of Christ, from his betrayal to the nails being driven in his hands, all the way to his ascension. So Steve starts thinking, you know, how can I tell this story in a way that's going to have its roots in modern society? Can we see Jesus, the Jesus story, in an everyday story that happens around us? Let us think about that, yes, that is Christ, but let's think about other ways in which people are being crucified today. And here's the thing. Steve's actually, he's African-American, and he started thinking about You know, what's a way in which a lot of modern society is harming African-American men, especially? And it didn't take long for Steve to come up with the answer. And I said, one of the spaces where I feel that people are being crucified are within our prison systems. You're listening to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Rachel Zabo. Every episode, we hear stories of social justice and Christian community. Today's episode is where the gospel meets mass incarceration. So today's episode is actually in partnership with the Pass the Mic podcast. And unfortunately, they could not be in the studio with us, but they gave us access to many of the stories that we're going to share with you today. Yeah, and actually, this episode was kind of hard to narrow down because... Let's be honest, like mass incarceration is a huge topic. We can talk about policy, talk about private prisons, talk about cash bail system, talk about prosecutors, like the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. And just to be clear, this episode, it's not meant to be a comprehensive study of all things related to mass incarceration. Instead, we're briefly going to look at mass incarceration from three major lenses, ethnicity, wealth and proximity. We'll talk about what mass incarceration is, where it came from, and some of the radical things Christians are doing about it. Welcome to our corner of the urban universe. Okay, so check out this headline from the New York Times this past April. It says... Crime is down, yet U.S. incarceration rates are still among the highest in the world. Yeah, so I looked up the stat, and the most recent count is we have 2.2 million people behind bars. And like just to put that in perspective, so the United States has 5% of the world's population, and we have 25% 
of the world's prison population. Yeah, so we lock up a very significant number of people. I mean, just what we spend on it alone is pretty staggering. Uh, We spend about $87 billion on jails and prisons. And so, you know, the question is, why? Like, are Americans just more prone to criminal activity? Which, you know, I don't think that's true because that New York Times headline said crime is down. So what's going on here? Yeah. And, you know, earlier, the artist Steve Prince, he said that people are being crucified within our prison system. And I think that part of what he means is that just as Jesus was tried and killed unjustly, we do have people today who are experiencing injustice at the hands of the justice system. And we're going to revisit Steve later in the episode. But I think first, it's important that we understand that this is not a modern problem. Judicial injustice, it has been around a long time. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah was also known as the weeping prophet. He wrote the book of Lamentations, where he laments over the destruction of Israel. Yeah, and Israel was being destroyed because they continually disregarded God. And you can read in Jeremiah and also in the book of Isaiah how a lot of their disobedience had to do with the ways they were enacting justice. They were exploiting the poor. The Bible says they would use unjust scales. And so they only looked out for their own interests and profit instead of the interests of their vulnerable neighbors. And Jeremiah, he's the one that calls this out. In Lamentations 3, he writes, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Yeah, and you know, the sad reality is Even though Jeremiah spoke those words more than 2,000 years ago, we can still see that same thing happening today. And so, you know, when people talk about mass incarceration, what they're really referring to is the injustice of the justice system. Right. They're not talking about people that are receiving fair sentences. They're talking about the fact that we have a system that oftentimes unfairly punishes people. Even if the crime was real, the punishment does not fit the crime. So that brings us actually to our first lens for looking at mass incarceration, because one of the major ways that we see this is in regards to ethnicity. One in three African-American men are predicted to spend time behind bars in their lifetime today, and the number is one in six for Hispanic males. So that's a guy named Dominique Gilliard. Uh, This is from a conversation he had on the Chasing Justice podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's the guy that wrote um, Rethinking Incarceration. That's right. Yeah. So I looked up some stats on this. So one in three African-Americans will be locked up, but that number is one in 17 for white people. And so you see this really alarming reality where black bodies have been um, criminalized. And that's one of the contributing factors of mass incarceration is that we lock up a lot of minorities. And of course, if we're locking up a lot more minorities, the question has to be asked, Does that mean that minorities are more criminal than white folks? Well, not necessarily. Okay, so in order to understand why there's a disproportionate number of minorities behind bars, Dominique says we need to take a look at our history. I'll say there has been this kind of fallacious notion that really mass incarceration started with the launch of the war on drugs in around the 1970s. So Dominique mentions the war on drugs, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but He believes that imprisoning large numbers of minorities actually started way before that. If you trace 
the research, you actually see that mass incarceration, particularly in relation to black bodies, uh, evolves right after the Emancipation Proclamation. You see the rise of black codes. And just to clarify, like, what are black codes? What does he mean? Okay, so after the Civil War, the 13th Amendment was added to our Constitution. And do you know what the 13th Amendment was for? Yeah, I mean, essentially it put an end to slavery. It made slavery illegal. Yeah, that's right. But there was an exception. Actually, let me read to you. This is what is written in the 13th Amendment, okay? It says, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. And so... Since African-Americans could no longer be made slaves, states made up these black codes. They were these laws that allowed them to put much of the African-American population behind bars so they could be put back to work. And you have black people who are being arrested for things as simple as walking too close to a wooden fence or vagrancy laws that literally said that a black person could be arrested for not being able to prove that they were employed. Um, And so you had this legislation that really started to funnel black people in mass into incarceration. I think the question that comes to mind probably for a lot of folks is like, we hear that and we're like, they were foolish, unwise, racist. But then we look now and we go, but thank God that's behind us. So it sounds like you're saying it's not behind us. Yeah, well, that brings us to the 70s and the 80s and the war on drugs. America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. Now we have to have very tough penalties. Emphasis on penalties. So here's the deal. In 1972, the prison population was 200,000. But since the implementation of harsh drug sentencing, we're at 2.2 million. In fact, nearly half of all federal inmates are locked up for drug-related offenses. Well... I get that. But like drugs are serious. Uh, What's so harsh about drug sentencing? I mean, most drugs are illegal. Well, let's do this. Okay, let me give you an example of how there can be injustice when it comes to drug sentencing. So I'm going to tell you about two different cases and I want you to compare them. Now, granted, it's practically impossible to do a direct comparison between two different cases because there's so many factors that go into that. But for these two particular cases, they at least both happened around the same time and in the same state. Okay, good. Okay, case number one. It involves a white businessman. And he's caught as the leader of a 20-person drug ring. So he's been trafficking cocaine. Now, drug trafficking, it's a serious crime. And the mandatory minimum for this guy is 10 years in prison. However, this guy agrees to give over the names of other people involved in the drug ring. And so, in turn, the judge reduces his sentence to just three years. So he ends up spending a total of three years for drug trafficking. Okay, so yeah, white businessman, uh, he's the leader of like a drug ring, busted for cocaine, was supposed to get 10 years. Judge reduces it down to three because he offered up some names. Right. Okay. Okay, the second case. This one involves an African-American college student. And he gets arrested because the police got a tip-off that he might be a drug ring conspirator. Now, drug conspiracy is not the same thing as trafficking, and so the sentence isn't going to be quite as harsh. And also the other thing that's in this kid's favor is there's no evidence of drug activity found anywhere in his home. So it is a possibility that the tip-off was bogus. 
However, what sentence do you think the judge gives this African-American college student? Well, I'm going to assume that it's going to be less than 10 years, right? I mean, he's not trafficking. So I don't know, maybe five years. So the judge sentences him to 19 years in prison. Wait, but why? I mean, your guess is as good as mine. And granted, I'm not a judicial expert. However, it's hard to ignore the fact that what is one of the major differences between these two men? Yeah, I mean, their ethnicity. And that's just one of millions of cases like that. Actually, according to the Center for American Progress, Black Americans are nearly six times more likely to be incarcerated for drug-related offenses than white Americans, despite there being equal substance usage rates. Okay, so there's all this research that's showing that basically, if you have black or brown skin, you're far more likely to get a more strict sentence, even if the facts remain identical. Yeah. So I guess, like, the question becomes, you know, what do we do with this reality living in this time and place? If we're seeing that there's this massive discrepancy between how black and brown bodies are sentenced versus how white folks are sentenced, you know, what do we do about that? And that's the question that one young lawyer asked himself. You know, he was seeing case after case of these discrepancies, these inequalities, and he just decided, I'm going to do something about this. I can't take it anymore. I spend most of my time in jails, in prisons, on death row. I spend most of my time in very low-income communities and the projects and places where there's a great deal of hopelessness. So this is a guy named Brian Stevenson. And at the time, he was just this young lawyer. But he just kept seeing how everything about the justice system seemed to be stacked against him and his clients. So one day, Brian just got fed up and he did this crazy thing. So this is a story from a TED Talk that he gave back in 2012. I represent children. We have life imprisonment without parole for kids in this country. The United States is the only country in the world where we sentence 13-year-old children to die in prison. And I go to the jail and I see my client who's 14 and he's been certified to stand trial as an adult. And I keep start thinking, well, how did that happen? How can a judge turn you into something that you're not? And I was up too late one night and I started thinking, well, gosh, if the judge can turn you into something that you're not, the judge must have magic power. I said, yeah, Brian, the judge has some magic power. You should ask for some of that. And because I was up too late and wasn't thinking real straight, I started working on a motion. Okay, so now for those of us that aren't lawyers, a motion is like asking a judge for a certain request, like a particular request. And in this case, Brian had a very particular request. Start working on this motion with, and the head of the motion was a motion to try my poor 14-year-old black male client like a privileged white 75-year-old corporate executive. That's like insane. Like, he's not really going to use that in court, right? Like, he, he didn't actually do that. <laughs> well. Now, the next morning I woke up and I thought, now, did I dream that crazy motion or did I actually write it? And to my horror, not only had I written it, but I had sent it to court. Coming up, an angry court, a janitor, and the cost of justice. We'll be right back. Hey, Rachel here. So we recently asked some of our alumni, can you tell us how serving with Love Thy Neighborhood has made an impact on your life long term? And I'd like to share one of those testimonies with you. So this is Vicki Shaw. She's actually a financial analyst in New York City. And here's what she had to say about her time serving with Love Thy Neighborhood. 
And so LTN was the environment and the community that really helped me to grow and not just to grow as a young adult, but to flourish as one, to learn about the passions that I have and to live it out in my everyday life. If you want to find your social justice internship supported by Christian Community, head over to lovethyneighborhood.org and apply today. It's the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Rachel Zabo. Today's episode where the gospel meets mass incarceration. So we're telling the story of Brian Stevenson. Brian's a lawyer, and one night, on a whim, he sent a motion to the judge asking that his, quote, poor 14-year-old black male client be tried like a privileged white 75-year-old corporate executive. And if you have questions about this motion, you are not the only one. It turns out the judge had a lot of questions, too. As soon as I walked inside, the judge saw me coming in. He said, Mr. Stevenson, did you write this crazy motion? I said, yes, sir, I did. And we started arguing. People started coming in because they were just outraged. I had written these crazy things. Police officers were coming in, and assistant prosecutors and clerk workers. Before I knew it, the courtroom was filled with people angry that we were talking about race, that we were talking about poverty, that we were talking about inequality. Okay, so this actually brings us to the second lens that we're going to look through today, which is wealth. So not only did Brian ask for his client to be seen as white, but he also asked that he be seen as wealthy. And there's a reason for that. We have a system of justice in this country that treats you much better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. Yeah, okay, so I was curious about this, and I looked up how much it costs to have a lawyer defend you in court. And lawyer fees can range anywhere from $250 to $520. Yeah, I mean, and that's per hour. You know, you're paying that fee per hour. Right. And so this can easily add up to thousands of dollars. And if you're in an urban area, lawyers tend to be more on the expensive side. And I realize that some people are going like, oh, yeah, but you can get a free lawyer. But yeah, but they have so we have 2.2 million people in prison. They have so many cases. Yeah, Public defenders are like way overloaded. You know, their caseloads are huge. They can barely prepare for them in time. And so there's a little bit of truth here where you get what you pay for. And so public defenders are doing great jobs, but their hands are tied in a lot of cases. And you don't just need money for lawyers. I mean, we have this cash bail system that we talked about briefly in episode 11 of this podcast. Yeah, in fact, cash bail is why our jails are so crowded. So actually 76 percent of all people being held in jail. So this is not prisons, but this is local jails. 76 percent of people in our jails haven't even been convicted of a crime yet. They're just stuck there because they can't afford the bail to get out. Right. So we have this justice system that says innocent until proven guilty. So these folks are in jail having not been proven guilty, but they also cannot afford to get out. So the bottom line is that we've made justice just really expensive in this country. So going back to Brian Stevenson, he's in the courtroom. He's made this outrageous motion Everyone is up in arms. They're furious with him. And Brian is feeling pretty discouraged. I would say so. Yeah. I mean, to him, it looks like there is no way to get actual justice for his client. But then, as the arguing in court continues, Brian notices what looks like the janitor outside the courtroom. 
And out of the corner of my eye, I could see this janitor pacing back and forth, and he kept looking through the window, and he could hear all of this hollering. He kept pacing back and forth. And finally, this older black man, with this very worried look on his face, came into the courtroom and sat down behind me, almost at counsel table. So Brian had no idea why this janitor had come in, but just a few minutes later, he found out this janitor was actually exactly who he needed. About 10 minutes later, the judge said we would take a break, and during the break, there was a deputy sheriff who was offended that the janitor had come into court. And this deputy jumped up and he ran over to this older black man. He said, Jimmy, what are you doing in this courtroom? This older black man stood up and he looked at that deputy and he looked at me and he said, I came into this courtroom to tell this young man, keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. So this janitor ends up sharing these words to him that are from the civil rights movement. Those are words that African-Americans would say to each other in moments of real hardship and real oppression as they were pushing back against injustice. And those words ended up helping Brian to understand that it wouldn't be easy, but this fight was worth it. Brian didn't end up saying what happened to that particular young man that he was representing. However, in 2012, Brian stood before the Supreme Court where he argued successfully to have mandatory life imprisonment without parole sentences for all children under the age of 17 permanently banned. And he went on to start this thing called the Equal Justice Initiative. It's an organization that provides legal representation to people who have been illegally convicted, unfairly sentenced, or abused in state jails and prisons. And often, those people are poor. Ultimately, you judge the character of a society, not by how they treat the rich and the powerful and the privileged, but by how they treat the poor. Yeah, and what Brian's talking about here, I mean, that's, that's some scriptural stuff, right? I mean, you've got Jesus in the book of Luke saying that he came to preach the good news to the poor. In the Beatitudes, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You've got the book of Psalms saying, blessed is the one who remembers the poor. May he judge your people with righteousness and the poor with justice. So as uncomfortable as we sometimes get in modern times when we start hearing this thing, just thinking, oh, that's liberal talk or, oh, that's outside of my theology. No, that's biblical. Justice and caring for the poor, that's from God. You know, I hear about the things that Brian is doing and with the Equal Justice Initiative, and I think it's spectacular but I think the question that comes is, well, what does mass incarceration have to do with me? I'm not standing in front of courts. I'm not petitioning judges. I'm not lobbying for policies. What do I do? Well, I think that that brings us to the last lens that we should look at. So we've talked about ethnicity. We've talked about wealth. And now I think that we need to talk about proximity. Because for some of us, you know, we don't live in environments where the effects of mass incarceration are apparent every day. It really isn't a reality for us. Okay, so I have a story for you, actually, about proximity. And, well, actually, at first it's about lack of proximity and this seminary professor who wanted to do something about that. So there's this seminary in Chicago. It's called North Park Theological Seminary. And one of the professors there is this woman named Michelle Clifton Soderstrom. Now, the seminary really wants to not just teach students about what the Bible says and fill their heads with knowledge, but they want their students to actually learn what it means to live it out. 
It's a lot like what we do at Love That Neighborhood. They want their students to be boots on the ground doing the work. And Michelle was noticing this disconnect. And so she came up with an idea. What it would look like for us to teach inside a prison, which is a community of people who are very under-resourced. They are segregated off from society. They're unrecognized, often invisible. Okay, but here's the thing. She not only wanted to teach inside the prison, but she also wanted to take her students in there with her so they could learn alongside the inmates. There's just one small problem with that, and that was the closest prison to North Park Seminary was this place called Stateville Correctional Center. Why is that place a problem? Stateville Correctional Center, it's a maximum security prison. And up until 2016, it was the last prison of its kind because it had an operational roundhouse. Wait, wait, what's a what's a roundhouse? Okay, so a roundhouse is typically what you see in movies if there's a prison scene. It's got the tower in the middle. There's the cells all around it. Oh, like to floor. in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes, when Rocket wants to take the guy's leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're trying to get but out. But what's the big deal about a roundhouse? I, I don't get it. So roundhouses are actually incredibly controversial because they're deemed inhumane. They create this cage-like atmosphere. It fuels chaos from the inmates. The acoustics are awful. It's incredibly noisy. In fact, one critic called the roundhouse a sensory nightmare. And it wasn't until just three years ago that Stateville finally shut theirs down. Okay, so Michelle wants to do this program at this place? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Why? Like, why would she want to do it? And what does it have to do with mass incarceration? Well, so addressing mass incarceration isn't just about reducing the number of people who get locked up. It's also about ensuring the just and fair treatment of those who are already behind bars. And believe it or not, Michelle says education can play a huge role in that. In fact, there is one program in California that's been running for over 10 years. In 10 years of having graduates, not one has gone back to prison for a violent crime. So education in general is pretty amazing for addressing mass incarceration. And so totally through like this friend of a friend who knew the chaplain at the prison sort of thing, Michelle got invited to come teach a test run class inside Stateville. So we walked back to the education building unescorted, walked by the yard. A lot of people in the yard would yell, you know, what are you guys here for? What are you doing? And We'd, you know, tell them we're here for classes. So we're trying to promote education wherever we go. And we got back to the education building and, you you know, that's locked too. You go in and you sign in with the sergeants and the officers. And there's usually three or four in the education building along with the principal. And they give you a classroom. And the guys were, were in there. They were in the classroom with desks. There's a chalkboard. There's no technology. And that's the environment. So what happened? I mean, were the guys even interested? Did it work? Well, stay with us. In today's episode of the Love That Neighborhood podcast, we're exploring where the gospel meets mass incarceration. And of course, incarceration, it's part of a system. You know, sometimes systems are good things, but sometimes they're not. Well, there's actually a personality type that loves structure and order and systems. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's bad. If you'd like to explore that more and see if this matches your personality, head over to our other podcast, 
Love That Neighborhood presents the Inia cast. And specifically, check out episode number 20 about The Loyalist with recording artist Liz Weiss. And so you have like these experiences in your lives that, I don't know, I feel like they just form who you are. And as I've gotten older, fear feels more like a burden now than something that can be a companion. Check out Love Thy Neighborhood Presents the Enneacast by searching for the Enneacast wherever it is that you listen to podcasts or by going to lovethatneighborhood.org slash Enneacast. Hey, Love Thy Neighborhood Podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. I'm Rachel Zabo. Today, where the gospel meets mass incarceration. Okay, so Rachel, you've been telling me the story about Michelle. She's a seminary professor and she wants to offer seminary classes inside a maximum security prison. Yeah, which it sounds kind of strange, right? Like when you think seminary degree, you don't think, oh, yeah, convicted felons. Yeah. Okay. so where we left off, I'm still really curious. Did anyone even come to this class? Actually, yeah, it was a full house. And in fact, Michelle was rather surprised at the type of people she found in her classroom because she found a lot of them were like the people Jesus mentions in Matthew 25. All of the people that Jesus names in Matthew 25 converge and come together in our prison system. The people we lock up are Matthew 25 bodies. Okay, so this thing Michelle's referring to is from Matthew 25. And it's this passage where Jesus is actually talking about the sheep and the goats. He's actually saying those that will receive eternal life, those that will receive salvation, are those that feed the hungry, those that give something to drink to those that are thirsty, those that invite strangers in. He also says it's those that go to visit those that are in prison. And he makes this equation where he says, when you do these things for the least of these, you do it for me. Yeah, well, and the thing that she never realized until she actually went into a prison was that, you know, the sick, the hungry, the thirsty, they can all be found within the walls of a prison. So actually, I was able to find two interviews with men that were students in Michelle's classroom. And the first one is a guy named Alex. I was able to be a part of the Catholic Church. I was actually an altar boy growing up. So Alex is Hispanic American, and he actually grew up in church. But even though he grew up in church, that wasn't the only part of his upbringing. The way I grew up is in a gang-infested community. Not only are your friends involved in gangs, but family members are involved in gangs. So the gang life has always been entrenched into our community, and that's how we view things. And it was because of the gang involvement that one night Alex found himself in the middle of a group fight. And during the fight, someone pulled out a gun and fired. That person ended up being killed. And the witnesses, for some reason, end up involving me as the actual shooter. So although I'm not guilty of actually pulling the trigger, that's the reason why I am end up being incarcerated. Okay, so I'm I'm hearing Alex say all of this, and, you know, I don't know the details of his case. You know, he's saying he's not guilty. Other people obviously thought that he was guilty. But I guess it's easy to get caught on that, but he's still worthy of love. He's still worthy of someone's effort, you know, and someone's care. I don't want to be here. I hate it. I'm being held captive. I'm being held hostage for something they said that I did that I know I didn't do. The other interview that I was able to find was from a guy named Howard. Am I sweating? Wow, I'm sweating. 
Y'all just got to remind me, man, that this is not like an interrogation. So actually, just like Alex, Howard also grew up in church. I grew up in one of those traditional Baptist Christian family. My grandparents coming to pick me up, blowing a horn, 630 in the morning to go sit in Sunday school. But, you know, as he grew up, Howard had the habit of abusing alcohol. And he said that people told him all the time not to drink and drive, but no one ever warned him not to drink and carry a firearm. I carried a gun at night when I traveled. Worst decision I ever made was putting that gun in my pocket while intoxicated on my way to a liquor store. You know, so I ultimately ended up making a mistake and taking someone's life. So I was ultimately convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to 55 years. And I lived with that, that event taking place in my life, you know, that reoccurring in my mind every day. So I feel like this is a good time to point out, like, there are crimes that take place, you know, like Howard just said, where, you know, justice is punitive. You're being punished for what you've done. There are consequences for certain actions. And so punitive justice is really important. I think it's it's very justifiable. I think it's also important, though, that we also understand, like, punitive justice is one side of justice, but the other side of justice is restorative. And restorative justice is not focused solely on the punishment. It's focused on how can we restore you to a better place, a right standing with society, with God, with other people. And so we have to look at justice and go, how is this justice punitive appropriately? And then how is it also restorative appropriately? Well, yeah, and this is where proximity becomes so important because it's really easy for us to just focus on the punitive part. So I guess the question is, like, why is it that we as Christians so often fixate on punitive justice, but we don't seem to be as interested in restorative justice? Well, actually, you know, we can't blame the media for everything, but part of the way that we view prisoners and punitive justice comes from television and Hollywood. You know, there was one research article that talks about this, and there's a term for it. It's called the othering of prisoners. And so we see them as not human. They're evil. They're barbaric. They don't deserve privileges. Like there's like us, and then there's the other. And the other is just like out there, far removed from us, and they're dangerous to us and our way of life. Right. And for those of us who aren't in proximity to the incarcerated We get our knowledge from secondhand media and movies. And historically, those screen images have painted prisoners as violent, dangerous and uncontrollable. You know, in fact, Dominique Gilliard talks about this in his book, Rethinking Incarceration. And so we start to think of criminals as those people, those immoral people, those people who make our communities dangerous, those people that we need to keep our children away. Um, And so it becomes this way in which subconsciously we start to think of the incarcerated as people who are beyond God's redemption. But Dominique would actually argue that this othering isn't the sort of narrative that we see in the Bible. We have to understand that there is really a fundamental connection between incarceration and scripture. And I think we have underestimated how significant that connection is. Literally, we would have no Bible were it not for criminals. I mean, when you really press into it, you got John the Baptist, Paul, Jesus, Samson, Joseph, Malachi, Stephen, Jeremiah, Peter, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Silas, all of these great biblical leaders were incarcerated. They're criminals. 
And so through her classes at Stateville, Michelle has been able to help her entire school view prisoners differently. So we've had hundreds, literally hundreds of our Chicago campus students, faculty, board members, senior administration come into the prison and even coming in once, they're deeply affected. So all of that engagement with people who are incarcerated allows our campus to then become not only a more hospitable place to people with records, but also to understand the complexities around who gets incarcerated and to you know, have, start to have a passion to address those things. Okay, so Michelle had this great idea, and it seemed like it went well. Like, what does that look like now? Yeah, so today North Park actually offers a full four-year Master of Arts in Christian Education degree inside Stateville. And actually, Michelle says that her students at Stateville are some of the school's best students. So our first year, um, we had a 95% retention rate, which is pretty amazing. It's higher than any program on campus. And all of the students got at least a C or better in every class. So, so some of our, t- our top students are, in- are incarcerated. And not only is this program changing the experience of incarceration for people at the school, it's also changing the lives of the inmates, too. What I'm learning in this course is that there's other ways that we can get our point across without having to be violent. They always emphasize Christ's divinity, right? In my household, in the church that I went to, right, they always emphasize, like, performing miracles or, you know, walking on water, right? That made him almost seem appear a bit supernatural, right, and far away and distant. But throughout these North Park program, right, they kind of, like, not only emphasize his divinity, right, but they also emphasize his humanity as well. And so they brought him a whole lot closer. It brought Christ from heaven and brought him, like, right here in the classroom with me. Okay, so remember Steve Prince? Oh, yeah, the artist. He was doing the Stations of the Cross thing. Well, he made each station still tell the story of Jesus, but it happened in modern times. And each image, it actually took place within a prison complex. Because as Steve was working on this, he realized that the parallels between what happened to Jesus and our current prison system, they are eerily similar. One of the things that I came across in research is when a person is killed within the prison system or executed, one of them is lethal injection. And in the photographs that I've seen of people getting a lethal injection, they have been put on a table that's in the shape of a cross. And that's the same way in which I have the person who is dying within this prison industrial complex. He is dying on that cross with the hypodermic needles embedded in his arms as replacing of the nails. Okay, so I feel like there's just, there's one other thing I just, I have to share with you. Like it's, it's too good just to leave on the table. So I want to share one last story with you from Brian Stevenson. So this is from a talk that he gave at last year's Skull World Forum. So as part of his work through the Equal Justice Initiative, to date, he's actually helped release over 135 death row inmates who were wrongly convicted. So that's 135 people who would have been executed in the name of justice because of an unjust sentence. And working with people on death row, it's one of the hardest things that Brian does for his job. But it's also the place that reminds him why he works in justice reform. 
A few years ago, I represented a man who was facing execution in 30 days. He was intellectually disabled. I got involved in this case very late. And I went to the trial court and I said, you can't execute this man. He suffers from intellectual disability. And the courts have banned the execution of people with intellectual disability. But this court said, no, it's too late. I said, no, it's not too late. I went to the state court. They said, too late. The appeals court said, too late. The federal court said, too late. Every court I went to said, too late. And on the day of the execution, I was waiting for a ruling from the United States Supreme Court. I was pacing in my office, and finally the phone rang. And it was the clerk of court at the United States Supreme Court. The clerk told me that my motion for a stay had been considered and reviewed, but the judgment of the court was that our motion was due to be denied too late. I then had to get on the phone and do the hardest thing I do in my work. I got this man on this phone, and I said to him, I said, I'm so sorry, but I can't stop this execution. And then the man did the thing that I dread the most in my work. He started to cry. He just began to sob. He said to me, he said, Mr. Stevenson, please don't hang up. There's something important I want to say to you. I said, of course. And then this man tried to say something to me, but in addition to being intellectually disabled, he had another challenge. When he got nervous, when he got anxious, when he got overwhelmed, he had a speech impediment. And he would begin to stutter, and all of a sudden, this man couldn't get out a single word. And he kept trying, and he kept trying. And the more he tried and failed, the more he was ripping my heart apart. And before I knew it, I was standing there holding the phone, and tears were running down my face. And as Brian's on the phone with this man, he starts having a flashback. Actually, back to when he was nine years old, at church with his mom, and he saw a new kid there. And he was standing there at the church, and he wasn't saying anything. And I asked him, what's your name? Where are you from? And I remembered that night how that little boy tried to answer my question, but he also had a very severe speech impediment, and he began to stutter. And then I remembered that I did something really ignorant. When that little boy tried to answer my question in church all those years ago, I remembered that I laughed at that little boy. My mom came over, and she gave me this look I'd never seen before, and she pulled me aside. She said, Brian, don't you ever laugh at somebody because they can't get their words out right. I tried to apologize. My mom wasn't having it. She said, now you go over there, and you tell that little boy you're sorry. I said, okay, mom. And I took a step to go see this little boy. My mom grabbed me by the arm. She said, wait, after you tell that little boy you're sorry, I want you to hug that little boy. I rolled my eyes a little bit. I said, okay, mom. And then my mom grabbed me by the arm again. She said, wait, after you hug that little boy, I want you to tell that little boy you love him. I said, mom, I can't go over there and tell that little boy I love him. She gave me that look again. So I did. I went over to this little boy. I said, look, man, I'm really sorry. And then I lunged at this child and gave him a a little boy man hug. And then I tried to say to this little boy as insincerely as I possibly could, I said, look, man, you know, well, I don't know. Well, you know, I don't know. Well, um, I love you. (laughs) And what I'd forgotten until the night of this execution is how that little boy hugged me back. And then I remembered how he whispered flawlessly in my ear. He said, I love you too. And I was thinking about that while this client tried to get his words out. And finally, my client got his words out. He said, Mr. Stevenson, I want to thank you for representing me. He said, I want to thank you for fighting for me. And the last thing that man said to me, he said, Mr. Stevenson, I love you for trying to save my life. They pulled him away. They strapped him to a gurney and they executed him. I hung up the phone. I said, I can't do this anymore. I've gotten too close. It's too much. It's too uncomfortable. I kept thinking about how broken he was. The question in my mind was, why do we want to kill all the broken people on this planet? And I sat down and I began reflecting 
And it was in that moment of reflection that I realized something I'd never realized before. That was the night I realized why I do what I do, and it shocked me. And what I realized is that I don't do what I do because I've been trained as a lawyer. I don't do what I do because somebody has to do it. I don't do what I do because it's about human rights. I don't do what I do because if I don't do it, no one will. What I realized that night that I'd never realized before is that I do what I do because I'm broken too. You know, as Christians, we live with the premise that this world is less than it should be. We live with the truth that man-made systems are flawed. And what that means for us living in America is that we can look at some of our own systems that we've created and we can start with the humility that it's probably broken in some way. But as Christians, our ultimate hope isn't in a perfect system. It's in a God who perfectly executes justice. And one day, he will right all wrongs. But until that day, God calls us to love our neighbors. So the question becomes, if we know a system is broken and we choose to do nothing about it, how then can we look at God and tell him honestly that we have loved our neighbor? If you'd like to learn more about North Park Seminary and the Restorative Arts Program, visit their website at northpark.edu seminary. For even more resources on this topic, including more from Brian Stevenson and Dominique Gilliard, or to hear past episodes of this podcast, visit our website at lovethatneighborhood.org slash ltnpodcast. Special thanks to our interviewees for this episode, Steve Prince, Dominique Gilliard, Brian Stevenson, Michelle Clifton-Soderstrom, Alex, and Howard. Brian Stevenson is the New York Times bestselling author of the book Just Mercy. This month, Just Mercy will be released as a movie starring Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx. Special thanks to Pass the Mic and to the Chasing Justice podcast. Also thanks to 2100 Productions and the Illinois Department of Corrections for Alex and Howard's interviews. Our senior producer and host is Jesse Eubanks. Our co-host today is Rachel Zaba, who's also our producer, technical director, editor, and owner of Far Too Many Cat Blankets. Additional editing by Resonate Recordings. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere, Pottington Bear, Kevin McLeod, and Blue Dot Sessions. Theme music and commercial music by Murphy DX. Apply for your social justice internship supported by Christian Community by visiting lovethyneighborhood.org. Serve for a summer or a year, grow in your faith and life skills. Which of these was a neighbor to the man in need, the one who showed mercy? Jesus tells us, go and do likewise. Likewise.